everyone and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. You wouldn't want to open a theater and play a movie with a Netflix account. So why do you think it's okay to stream your Spotify music in your cafe, restaurant, or shop? Well, it's actually not. And this is exactly the problem that my guest today, Ola Sars, has set out to solve with his startup, Soundtrack Your Brand. It's estimated that up to 2.7 billion is lost per year in royalties to artists through misused streaming. While much of this is certainly not malicious, the cumulative impact of thousands of restaurants, coffee shops, bars, and businesses can make quite a bit of difference for the right holders. Soundtrack Your Brand is the first B2B music licensing company that aims to solve this problem for businesses and provide playlists with over 50 million cleared songs in 74 markets. Ola himself is a serial entrepreneur, including being a co-founder of the well-known Beats, which was bought by Apple. So a lot of experience there. I'm looking forward to talking to him today. So thank you so much for coming on my show, Ola. Thank you for having me. Good morning, London. <laughs> okay, so this is your fourth music-related startup. Before Soundtrack Your Brand, you co-founded Pacemaker, Let's Mix, and of course Beats. Why your interest in music tech? Where did that come from beyond being just a Swede, I guess? Well, first of all, I actually co-founded Beats Music, which was the music streaming platform for Beats. Beats by Dre was the headphone company before that. It was It's always been about just music streaming and building music tech around the macro of basically music going digital. And, and that obviously happened for more than 10 years ago when... Everything from production of music, I mean, started going digital. Every kid with a laptop could create their own music or build their own brand. Distribution was obviously going digital with music as well. Before the music industry was able to react to it, I know that file sharing, illegal file sharing, piracy, it was called, created the biggest challenge for the music industry ever. But consumers wanted to consume digitally. Distribution was going digitally. Either they liked it or not, and they needed to kind of comply to that. And at the same time, the distribution of smartphones and, and connectivity everywhere led to consumption also going digital. So the whole value chain in, in the music industry was transforming right in front of everyone at the same time. So obviously, for me, it was a passion. It was an opportunity to work with one thing that I loved, music. And then there was obviously also the intellectual interesting prerequisite of this market digitizing right in front of us and something very new and interesting was being created. So I decided to jump in and try to work with my passion. Nice. So why are there so many music tech companies coming out of Sweden? I'm sure this has been covered before, but I'm curious to understand SoundCloud, Spotify, so many other companies. What is it in the water there? Well, obviously, I don't know the objective answer to that question, but I can speculate as a Swede who's been or is somewhat of a senior citizen in the music streaming space, I would say. First of all, I think we, we have a public school system here in Sweden with free education, which enables people to choose 
their path early and a lot of good public music schools that are also are good for broader academics but that, that have a music focus leads people into the opportunity of adding kind of a musical academic schooling early into their career or educational life and then also i mean sweden as a model there's there's a, a path into the future where we provide somewhat of a security net right in our system and and that enables people to take more risk and young people to dare kind of work with their passions or kind of take a less secure path in their life because music is obviously quite opportunistic it's not easy to make it in either the creative side of the music or now the business side of music so maybe that has created kind of a, a starting point for people to dare to you know, take a chance to move in and try to work with music because there's a lot of people who love music and obviously want to try to work with the past just as I've been privileged to do that and lucky to be able to survive through it. I think that creates an interesting breeding ground for that that specific side of business. Interesting. If I look at all your other startups, most of them have been B2C in the music space. And I know that Soundtrack, your brand, is your first B2B endeavor in terms of you selling to businesses. So how has that transition been for you? What was hard about doing B2B business if you compare it to your previous experience of B2C? Well, personally, I'd never done B2B before. I hardly knew what it was or specifically not B2B sauce, which was something new for me as well. But I did come from a background in music tech and understanding the complex value chain of of music and the digitization of music. So that's obviously a good starting point. And it's, it's a fairly complex reality in music. People tend to underestimate the complexity of music mm. uh, and music distribution. So I had that as a good starting point. And then the kind of the customer logic was not any rocket science, obviously, because uh, streaming was a macro that was occurring in the consumer space and music was also played in the business context. My bet was very easy was if streaming is the model in the consumer space and it started there in this instance, then most likely streaming will be the model even for music in the public context, historically called background music. So that's where the, the, the idea started. Very simple idea, taking what occurred in the consumer space into the B2B space with music streaming. Then comes the reality of B2B, right? And I quickly realized that it's a major difference. It's different in terms of how you build product, how you license content, how you approach the market through your go-to-market, how you quantify the market, and how basically everything you do as running a business is different. But the, the, the simple prerequisite of licensing content, putting that into a great user experience, and then monetizing that user experience through GTM is the same, but all the components were different. So I had to learn from from scratch and try to build a team that had done B2B SaaS before. Hmm. I know that initially when you started your current company, Soundtrack Your Brand, you had a field sales, you had inside sales, etc. And then due to circumstances, which we'll talk about later, you've now gone to a fully self-serve model, right? So in B2B, that's a pretty 
uh, severe pivot. What did you need to do to go from field sales-led model to a full self-serve model? How did you have to change your organization, your investment priorities, or anything else? Right. So I think that pretty much explains the whole challenge that I've gone through and, and the many mistakes that I've done. But I'll try to systematically walk you through it. So the good news was obviously that streaming was the model and businesses obviously would like to unlock the value of music and the value of technology in terms of 50 million tracks and in order to play the right music at the right place at the right time. That's what it's all about in businesses in a collective context. And that sets completely new requirements, of course. I mean, in terms of uh, explicit lyrics, uh, it sounds different in Shoreditch than it sounds in some other part of London. It sounds different in Chicago than it does in New York and so forth. So that notion was already there, that music was a way of augmenting a brand experience and customer experience. And if you could kind of, in in a smart way, adjust to music in real time, you could drive sales and build your brand. I didn't have to convince the businesses over the world that music was important because they had been playing music for 50, 60 years, but they had been doing it through legacy platforms like CD or satellite feeds in the best case. Now I was digitizing their opportunity in music. So that's the good news. The, the second kind of dimension of the good news was that the business model of streaming was established for the consumer market. And it's a fairly complex business model, the model between a DSP like Spotify, for example, and the labels of the world uh, and the publishers of the world. For example, Soundtrack Today has around 10,000 direct licensing deals with labels and publishers on equal amount that Spotify or Apple Music has. And all of those deals need to comply to a business model. And in the streaming space, that business model is called greater of. And shortly put, it's just like you sell for 10 pounds, $10 or, or 10 euro in some market. And then you need to share of that 10 $10 to the rights holders. And in the instance of the consumer space, Spotify or Apple Music give away roughly around 70 to 75% of the revenues that they extract. Right. And everyone knows about that. And that goes to labels and publishers. That kind of describes the complexity and the power balance in between rights holders and consumer. But the model was set, the greater up. You're paying, if you're pushing the price down too low, then you're going to hit kind of a floor. Or if you push it up, then the rev share kicks in. So it kind of it kind of regulates the market in terms of pricing, where there's a preferred pricing point in the mm-hmm. consumer space. It's around ten dollars. So leading to B two B, that model was set, and then everyone did understand intellectually that B two B is different than B two C. But we needed to go out to these ten thousand plus rights holders again and establish the price points in the same business model as in the B2C. So the business model was set, just like in telcos and so forth. I mean, there's consumer accounts and then there's business accounts. You just need to reconfigure the mathematics a little bit. So we set out to do that. And that took more than three years to do that. But it led to a point where we're now selling B2B music subscription at around $30 on our average price point around the world. So we're increasing value in the market. That was also very important for the music industry. 
which is currently being scrutinized quite you know significantly through the streaming model. Are we selling music too cheap? Are artists actually getting paid properly? Who's taking all the money and so forth? Here we are, another Swedish startup that's actually going in, in the right direction in terms of the music industry's preference, increasing value and perception of value in music, hence uh, greater royalties to them. But we're also able to argue the fact that B2B is different. It's more expensive to go to market, hence we should keep more of that equation. So the model was there, but we needed to reconfigure kind of the econometrics of that model, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other good news, the third good news was that the global market started realizing fact that streaming was the distribution model for music and that streaming was going to win. That was not the case, uh, for example, previously when I started Beats Music. That was still on the fence if streaming, mm. believe it or not. <laughs> I mean, the industry was like, is it going to be streaming or something else? Wow. But now I could pretty easily just say that we're, you know, streaming is the model. I'm just bringing B2B as an incremental opportunity for the industry to grow the industry. So, that that's the good news, right? When we started up, but then all of a sudden you started looking at okay, what are the, the points of difference between B two C and B two B? They were enormous because obviously, if I try to structure it first, there's a product dimension, and the product dimension was completely different. If mm. and I'll try to exemplify. If you're a, a B two B buyer versus a B two C buyer. If you're running 10 restaurants in London, for example, you're obviously a very forward-leading entrepreneur on your brand. And music is a very important part of that brand DNA and the customer experience. And you want to centralize and control that brand experience as you control advertising or interior design or you know graphic design or the menu. You are want to be rigorous around how that experience is pursued to the end user, the consumer business. So we needed to create a centralized CMS for music where you could sit, for example, one of our customers, Joan the Juice, which is a Danish juice chain, where music plays uh, an integral role in everything they do. They are now from headquarters in Copenhagen through our CMS, the soundtrack system, controlling around 1,000 juice bars worldwide in real time and kind of fine-tuning the music experience in the different instances. If it's lunch in London and if it's breakfast in New York, there's a different soundscape. And if it's on Manhattan versus Brooklyn, it sounds different for breakfast and so forth. That's the complexity that they're trying to you know, put into the system and kind of distribute a real-time experience, but that is contextually relevant at the endpoint, meaning the store or the juice bar in this instance. So obviously that's pretty far away from Spotify or anything where you're delegating the endpoint and control. So anyone with kind of the client can decide anything. And that's obviously not what you want to do if you're running a business. Like let staff decide what music is being played or let staff decide what POS system is being used. That's not how businesses work. They need to centralize control. They need to be compliant. They need to be able to pay through different methods. And then the whole kind of product equation started. The curation is completely different. So we needed to build a completely new way of thinking about AI and music intelligence for brands. Uh, brands think in terms of brand strategy and brand positioning and you know target segments. So you need to kind of input those type of variables into our AI 
instead of kind of your personal preferences. And then our AI creates kind of a brand DNA, uh, music DNA for your brand and distributes that through the system in real time. So product, I would say 100% different. The commodity is the same, the 50 million track, but the, the distribution and the logic is completely different. So that's the first equation. Try to keep it short okay. here, sorry, but it's a very complex question. Then licensing. There were yeah. no licensing deals for business use of music. The only licensing deals that Spotify and Apple and so forth were for consumer use. So we need to go out and redo 10,000 licensing deals and establish the, the business model for that. So I spent three years on a plane, more or less, doing that uh, and establishing that. So there's a very long version of that, and I'll keep it to the short one. It's basically just harmonizing the whole market around this business model and getting 10,000 deals done in order to enable the product with the content that any uh, user expects because they're using Spotify, right? So they expect to have all the music in the world. And (laughs) providing all the music in the world is not trivial. So that's obviously another very interesting barrier of entry that we've created in terms of kind of the content sourcing model. And then, then to your to, to your religion, right? Go to market, and I can stop there for a while. But that obviously is something completely new to me as well. And I'll get yes. to the self service, but we can stop there for a while. And, and we, yes. that was probably the most interesting part of kind of uh, how I needed to relearn how to bring music to the market. Yeah. So I have some questions around the go-to-market, but we'll visit that. But before that, I have a couple of other questions. I've also seen some press around stores like MS, for example, stopping the use of what they call piped music. Yes, there's a lot of science and research that shows that music does motivate a different customer behavior in terms of purchase, in terms of how long they spend in a cafe or restaurant, etc. But then I also see some news like this. Can you give some background on what's happening in the B2B streaming space in terms of trends you're seeing. Right. And I think that's obviously the most important thing for us, uh, what you're referring to now, how, what is music for a brand and how does it become uh, a positive benefit rather than pain point? I think I could simplify it by the statement. If you're not doing music properly, it's better not to do it. And our research and all the data we're looking at points right to that fact. Because you can't just put any music in there, you know, put radio or just let staff play or whatever. You need to approach it like dead serious in terms of as you approach any type of brand investment. Because all the data that we're looking at, and we're, we're studying a lot of data, and we're actually running sales data in real time with some clients as well to see kind of the cause and effect, is... When you're applying uh, a music strategy correctly and on brand and contextually relevant, depending on where you are in the world and so forth, it becomes a major experiential asset for you. I used to work in a shop as when I was younger during the weekends and that's an extra job. And during Christmas, it would drive me absolutely nuts because you would get one CD with 20 tracks that you would hear. That's just pure torture. Yeah. And that's and and the people at Central HQ, they don't care because they don't have to listen to it. But the staff needs to live in that environment and the, and the customers as well. You need to properly engage and invest in music for it to become that asset that it should be. And if done so, a lot of research shows to the effects we've actually done 
massive field studies with big U.S. brands, one showing, for example, 9% top-line increase. And that was the world's biggest field study by uh, independent academics. So, I mean, everyone gets that. Like the right music in a bar, you'll stay for another drink or the right music gets you in the right mood to stay longer and maybe purchase more. But yes, if done incorrectly, just see it as a commodity, which a lot of enterprise buyers actually do. The same people mm-hmm. that are buying toilet paper are buying music. And, and that's just incredible. It should be the marketing department, it should be retail experience team doing it, or should be the tech team doing it. And I think that transition in the industry has not occurred yet. But yes, if applied incorrectly, it just becomes noise and, and hazardous, and you might as well just not do it. So that's a really interesting point you bring. And it's like, who do you typically sell this to within, within brands? And what is their reaction when you show them this data and this correlation? So kind of going back to your GTM question and, and simplifying that as well. I mean, we set out with a big ambition to build the world's first streaming platform for, for B2B music. And then we thought, all right, that would apply to anyone, right? That could apply to Starbucks all the way to, you know, my local mom and pop store, because it's basically the same notion, the right music in the right place, right time is good for your brand and business. Then we realized that (laughs) to be go to market is very different. You need to sell in through different methods, uh, channels, if you may. So then happily, happy Swedes just continued. All right, then let's just build out. Uh, a field sales operation and in sense and put some inside sales in there as well. Let's do a partner sales, you know, platform as well. And let's do online. And obviously the, the last component of that equation is the most interesting thing that I took for granted, right? Because I came from the consumer side where online provisioning and self-service was the model. So I didn't even reflect upon the complexity that that incorporates because it is damn complex to build a self-service product. Yeah. But, but the good news of that was obviously that we, we knew that hundreds of millions of consumers were doing it and consumers are humans and humans are also business buyers. So, right. so then I started understanding the fact that no one else had ever sold kind of, or, or I'd rather say this in B2B sauce, self-service scalability and kind of product-led growth was something luxurious or something, you know, very aspired by many, but very hard to build and very, very uh, expensive to build. Mm-hmm. But we built that initially, right? So we kind of had the, the magic diamond from the beginning without knowing it. And then we went out and built like four sales channels. And very quickly doing many, many mistakes on the path, we realized that Look, yes, we are serving enterprise clients. Yes, we are serving the mid-market. Yes, we are serving SMB. Is that the right way to go to market as a B2B SaaS? Probably not, if we would have gone to the right school to before we yeah. did it. But the good news was we learned the hard way because then we wouldn't would never have known. We realized the fact that yes, you can sell field through field sales into B2B SaaS, but it's not even close to being as efficient. Uh, as if you're doing it self-service online. You can do the big deals, but the cost of sales and the sales cycles are just crazy. And all of kind of the legacy competition is using that channel. Hence, we're competing with them when we're in Las Vegas eating steaks with potential clients. And, and it just I just realized that that is a very antiquated way of doing business, at least for us, 
that have the luxury of being able to provide a product that is not too sophisticated for self-service. So we very big change in our GTM model. We kind of took away the field sales. And there's a long story about that learning, obviously, as well. But then we started looking at inside sales, which we saw more as a very good complement to the self-service online. So we, we integrated them into hybrid, where we call it online first. So everything we do now is through kind of online acquisition and, and online prospecting. But we, an online intent moving into the funnel, we pick up the people who fall out through our customer success team. So we add humans only when absolutely necessary in the onboarding stage, but we always deliver the keys to the client in terms of a self-service management model. So, so that kind of... Uh, and then and on top of that, we now have the online first model, but we also still have a partner channel. And, and that partner channel is primarily resellers 10 to 15 high-performing resellers because our product is totally unique that actually go after these enterprise clients that do require managed service and kind of procurement process and so forth because then they can take that job and we don't have to build a team around it and they can add the value-added services on top of our service. So I think after many mistakes, we've found our GTM model right now, but the future is still kind of in front of us to prove it out. So most of the inbound is through paid ads and SEO, etc. Is that how you're capturing demand? Everything is. Everything is. We've now become extremely focused and disciplined on this online first model. So everything is about creating demand through growth hacking, basically, or basically online marketing to, to spell it out. And 75% of that is actually pull in terms of search because the good news is the demand is there and it's global and around 150 million businesses are you know looking to have music somewhere in the reception or something and and when they do that they go out and search for music for italian restaurants or they go out and search for music for my law uh, for my reception at my dentist office so the demand is there on the web and we need to capture it Okay. I know there are a lot of businesses that are playing music that are doing it with their personal Spotify account. How do they know that this is not actually legal to do? And is there any enforcement that's happening? Right. So I'll start off by saying our role in this equation, yes, there's a very clear legal line here. You refer to Netflix opening a cinema. It's exactly the same thing. If you're using music in a public context, then you need to be licensed to do that. I mean, if you're showing the Premier League in your sports bar, then you know you need a business license, right? And that business license is not cheap. For an example, in the UK, you would be paying around 20,000 quid a year in order to kind of provide the Premier League in your sports bar. So, so music is pretty cheap relative to that. <laughs> and, you know, if you don't want music and, and you know all the great art in the world you don't have to buy it but if you're using it then you need to pay for it it's as simple as that because the artist and the songwriter should be properly compensated if their art is used to sell more beer or coffee or clothes or whatever so everyone does intellectually and emotionally understand that the problem is that streaming is a new phenomenon it's only been around for 10 years for us so this is a new thing and the industry has not been able to get there yet in terms of informing. So it is a massive information gap right now, an educational gap. 
that and perhaps the compliance and uh, regulatory exercise as well, because yeah. the music industry has significant organizations in place to protect the music industry and right. secure a compliant and sustainable usage of music art. So they, they've gone through that quite, you know, significantly during the B2C crisis, right? When during file sharing. So they learned that how to do that. It's just that it hasn't occurred yet. It's happening right in front of us right now. My part in that equation is obviously not to be the police uh, or the stick, if you may. Our job is to be the carrot, uh, is to provide a seamless, great product experience at a reasonable price point uh, so people could easily kind of access all the music, set it up, control, use advanced AI to set the right brand and then go on and sell their coffee. Save them time, money, and anxiety. That's my job. But the industry needs to start really pushing on this. And they are because it's incremental. It's low-hanging fruit for them. They just need to get there in terms of time. Yeah. If they are educated that there is technology that can actually help, that might have been the missing piece. They would be the biggest partner in being able to, to make people aware, enforce it, and then give them a solution on how they can play music legally in there. Right. And uh, the funny thing about that is obviously, once again, uh, Spotify had the initial strategy when they started off to be better than piracy. So that's obviously our strategy as well, to provide a B2B platform offering. Once again, completely different than the B2C. So we can be better than piracy in this instance, actually being misusage of, of consumer services. I also want to say that we did do some data with Nielsen that we did provide to the industry. So us, the DSP, had to invest in this research. in order, And that showed very clearly that there was around 21 million businesses around the world using consumer accounts illicitly. That led to, at the end of the day, around 2.6 billion. Um, dollars on an annual basis and lost out royalties. And that's a lot of royalties, even for the big brands in the US. And so hence, everyone got out of bed and started working with it. But we had to actually invest in that research initially to open people's eyes. Interesting. Well, I'm sure it was well worth it. And hopefully, the music industry is sitting up and taking some action. Okay, I have a few questions around Spotify. My first question is, how defensible is what you've built at Soundtrack, your brand? Why can't Spotify or Apple add this functionality to their platforms? Well, they can, absolutely. The reason I think why Soundtrack is well-positioned, because anyone could always do it, obviously. First of all, we've raised more than $50 million and invested in the platform. So for them, maybe that's not a lot of money, but for any other startup around the corner, it's a lot of money. And then we've spent five years engineering and product developing around this pretty advanced system. In parallel to that, we've done 10,000 direct deals that no one else has in the world. So you would have to replicate the technology build and you would have to replicate the licensing build. It could absolutely be done. But even for Google, Spotify, Apple, it would take significant hours and investment required. I would give them two years for a big company to get there, maybe three years. We have created a time-limited monopoly, at least to kind of establish Soundtrack as a brand. And obviously, during that period, we will also evolve our understanding of the customers and our product development and serving the customers even more. So we would continue increasing our head start through that process. 
Yeah, it could be done for sure. The main reason uh, for it is actually the fact that a Spotify is an investor in Soundtrack. Uh, I co-founded the company with Spotify, so we are kind of there bet into this space. They're merely a financial investor, but obviously they can have a view of what we're doing and learn from the sideline, which is something interesting. So here's my main point. It is not a strategic priority by any of the big ones right now in the music streaming space, consumer music streaming space, for one reason is that music streaming for consumers has just begun. Uh, this market currently at around 400 million paying subscribers in the consumer space, which sounds a lot. They're looking to reach a billion by the end of 2030. That's Goldman Sachs' estimates of kind of the, the big secret of market of paying subscribers. What does that imply? That implies Spotify needs to say laser focused on not losing the lead in the consumer space, right, of all this incremental growth. They're fighting off giants like Apple and Amazon and Google. Why would they divert into anything that's kind of close to kind of losing focus? Uh, and at the same time, they're, they're focused on consumer audio, which is completely different. And the, the expansion for them right now is podcast in order to expand the audio ownership of the consumer space. So audio consumers is the strategic direction for these players, not B2B, which would require very clear diversion in terms of product and so forth. And the second part of that logic, it's too small. The market, it's, it's a fairly small market and you compare it to this massive global consumer macro. So it will take them another five. This is my subjective view on it. It would take them three to five, maybe 10 years until they start looking for an additional revenue stream uh, besides the audio that they're doing, which is good news for us, right? So we get another three, five years to kind of build out this amazing incremental opportunity for music streaming. Uh, but right now, the, the alternative investment logic for them doesn't make sense. It could change tomorrow. I could be wrong, but that's my view on it. Okay. Okay. Another question on Spotify. When you founded Soundtrack, your brand, you did so initially with Spotify. You later on went on to separate your backend from Spotify and went independent. I'm curious to understand why did you decide to separate and what advice would you give other entrepreneurs that are looking to partner with a bigger player in their industry? That's a, that's a tricky question. So our reality was, I had just come from an experience of trying to build everything myself at Beats in the US, realizing the fact that it took at least three years to build a music backend. That's extremely sophisticated and at minimum, it's a 20 to $30 million build. So being back in Sweden, I basically walked over the street with my co-founders and talked to Daniel and Martin, who are the founders of Spotify. And everyone knows each other in this small city here. And said, look, I, I want to try to build the B2B streaming service for music. But I would think it would be interesting if we could do it as a co-venture where I could source your backend initially, because then I could focus on the consumer interfacing experience and all the hard logic that needs to be built out there. And that was an idea that we agreed on and because they thought it was interesting to be a part of. It could be something that they could look at somewhere you know, down the line in the future. For them, they're also kind of emotionally attached to the Swedish ecosystem and like to help out. So it was a good win-win. So answering the first question, for me, it was increasing velocity in time to market, minimizing investment until proof of 
concept. Three, potentially strong verification of my business idea through a very strong industrial partner. Those were the good, the pluses in the equation, right? Then there were uh, lots of hairy logics in in doing it through an industrial partner as a co-founder as well, right? You all of a sudden became completely dependent. You all of a sudden could not control your own supply chain. Your, Your supply equation became someone else's business problem to solve which obviously ends up in us not getting competitive licensing rates because they did licensing for us initially because we were sourcing content from their backend, not being prioritized by no means in any kind of content development or technology development, which ended up in a situation where we were, went live with kind of our commercial proof of concept Spotify business, as it was called in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, and then it stopped at non-competitive rates in terms of kind of licensing. But the good news was then I had gotten my commercial proof of concept because very quickly we became the market leader in in the Nordics, except Denmark. And by that point, I could prove to myself and to future investors that the B2B market is interested in buying music streaming at through my model and at a certain price point. And we have lots of demanding coming from global accounts, which we cannot serve now. So that was the decision to then move away from home, raise some additional significant money in order to go completely independent and build out our own licensing and backend infrastructure. What is some advice you would give to other entrepreneurs that are looking to do something like this? What should they look out for? What should they prepare for? What will your advice be? I think what you need to do, and I think I did so, was that you just do a simple plus minus analysis, right? Or a SWOT analysis of this. And then you put it into a time scope, like a tree structure. I tend to do everything through through tree structures. What happens at this inflection point? Do we go up, down, or straight forward? So that's what I did in this kind of start as well. And then I did kind of the the pros and cons, like, okay, what's the pros, what's the cons? And I I follow that tree structure on. So it's like I did move to commercial proof of concept, and then I needed to take the very painful breakout and the the governance exercise. Obviously, Spotify is, is, when they do do like this, they do grant themselves some rights. So yeah. that's then you need to be logic and a good team player in order to explain that, look, Daniel, we, we, we're much better off independently. We can go and you can take a step back and you can be a financial investor. You can follow us that way. And then working through all the legalities of the structures of shareholder agreements and so forth. But at the end of the day, the advice is think through multiple phases and think through different kind of inflection points in those phases and draw out the tree structure. In my case, it was, okay, were we able to go live? Yes. Were people buying, you know, actually at that point, five times the price in the Nordics? Yes. Are they kind of engaging the way we think through multiple locations through one central account? Yes. Okay. Are we selling online and are we kind of growing relatively fast than everyone else? Yes. Okay. Could we do our own licensing? Could we build our own? Could I raise money for it? Yes. Right. Then independence. Because it was basically Spotify buy us or go independent or fold. That was that 
counterinfection point. So it was a very, in my mind, a very expensive pilot that you ended up building. So knowing what you know now, would you do it again? The other day when you prepped me for this interview, I said, yes, I would. <laughs> but then uh, during the weekend, I had some other businesses. I looked at the cap table again and my ownership. <laughs> and obviously these things come with a price and they come with complexity and dilution and everything. But I think the relevant question for me, kind of rephrasing your question is, would I have gotten here? without Spotify as my initial partner? And I believe not. Okay. I believe not. So that answers my question. Yes, I would have done it again because it would have been too hard to raise the money without a product in the market. You got it. Obviously, the pandemic must have had a dramatic impact on your business. But this is also not the first time you've come close to shutting down your business. My question is, when times get hard... How do you keep going? And more importantly, how do you bring your whole company and people along? That's even a harder question. Well, first of all, remember where I came from. I moved into the music industry from a previous history in, in, in kind of a career I was not happy with. So my move to the music industry was kind of my liberation, right? It was the privilege of even having that opportunity, I realized, being able to choose where to work and being able to follow your passion. I'm not taking that for granted at all. I see myself as a very, very lucky person. So obviously that creates some drive on the fact that I've now been given this amazing opportunity to work with my passion and hence I'm not giving up. (laughs) And then obviously there's some personality in there as well with perseverance and kind of just never giving up because I've always believed intellectually in the market opportunity. I've always believed that the music industry is undervalued almost to the point of being dysfunctional but being a massive global opportunity of value improvement so that kind of intellectual understanding of the the market macro has always driven me to the fact like look i can't find a better market and if if Mm -hmm. i'm doing something as well with and enjoying it and working with this amazing thing music then i'm not failing i'm not giving up Uh, I might not make it the first time or we might go the wrong way, but I'm still working with the same thesis as when I started 12 years ago is in a market of abundance, the one who creates like the solves the problem or the job to be done with the right music at the right price at the right time will win. And then you can monetize that through different models. In this instance, it's B2B. So a little bit of personality mixed with a very clear intellectual understanding and belief in the macro and the market that has actually proven to be right. I I can't stand up straight and say like, yes, the change did occur. What about your people? How do you you bring them along? And then obviously that connects to that. I also need to get them to share my intellectual and emotional ethos here, right? Or driving force. First of all, they're lucky to work with music as well. Hence, I'm able to kind of recruit elite engineers. I haven't had the opportunity to pay them like Google, obviously, because we're still, so we're competing for the same talent. And we've been able to create this amazing team and we've invested a lot into culture, obviously. But at the end of the day, 
culture is nothing without being honest to people and get them to, to understand themselves, the intellectual kind of background. And that is the, the pure market opportunity numbers and how fun it would be to actually provide we're not saving the world. We're not, you know, curing cancer or anything. Let's just be real. We're working with music, but we could actually add another X to Y percent on top of music streaming. And we could actually flow through another X billion or million dollars to artists that could pay their rent. So kind of just being honest about it, not trying to, you know, package it into something amazing. We're going to save the world. You know, it's like, look, we're selling music and we're selling music to businesses, but this is the reality of it. And it's damn fun. And it's a pretty cool product uh, challenge. It's a pretty cool vertical kind of bet. And it could be extremely profitable if we kind of... The the uh, scalability in this model theoretically is amazing. So really trying to tell it like it is, not putting it into fancy buzzwords or visionary, visionary dreams of saving the world. And then like working with culture working with recruitment, reiterating your idea a million times, being, you know, brutally honest and open when it's going in the wrong direction. Got it. That's good advice. Okay. One last question. You obviously are sitting on a lot of data because you've launched in 74 different markets. Have you looked at the data? Are there any interesting insights in terms of how music is being consumed by businesses in different continents or countries that you could share? Yeah, I think if you're interested in the, in the music industry and the future of music streaming, then uh, even though we're, we're still a small little company, there's another way of looking at. So we serve physical spaces, right? So cafe, bars, restaurants, hairdressers, retail, big, small brands. On average, in every kind of physical instance where we serve music, there's around 700 unique consumer touch points per day, walking in and out on average the doors of our customers. So let's just put that on a thousand for for you know put the American filter on top of it, and that's a thousand per 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 store per day. If we have a million of those subscriptions, do the math in terms of consumer reach. If you talk about the music industry today and you look, what drives them is money, as always, you know, which is fine. That's, it. that's why they go. And the other one is breaking artists because that's really what they do, specifically on the label side. Breaking artists. And how do you break an artist? In, in the, the 80s, it was through Rolling Stone magazine, radio, and MTV. Right. Everyone's trying to figure out how to break an artist today in the more limited windowing opportunities there is. Everyone's trying to do Facebook, trying to, you know, buy the people at the Spotify content team launches to get them on playlists. And there's this whole new world that they need to learn about. But at the end of the day, it's about reaching critical mass of consumers, a low marketing dollar. What we just created is actually the world's potentially biggest music network in terms of consumer reach. We can be much bigger than radio very quickly. And we control every instance and we can track the data and we can also start connecting to kind of consumer flow through data, sales data. This brand is actually very interested in this segment and this artist. And then we can facilitate deals between brands and artists and so forth. So there's a very interesting marketing opportunity through the B2B platform in terms of massive consumer reach. And 
in terms of the data, you can track the couple of hundred millions of users of consumer services every day for sure. But that's not even close to the billions of music users every every day. So this is this new platform that the music industry can relate to now and start using to A, generate more revenue, money, B, breaking artists, reaching consumers and finding relevant context. I mean, how many of us have not discovered a new artist or track when we were in a bar and so forth? So not answering exactly what type of data, but then you start looking at the data based on that and wow. Okay, look at this cool bar in Brooklyn. What are they consuming? Oh, this is, it tells you a lot about like that bar, right? And what should be relevant artists for them. Another angle is if a con- consumer comes to a city, for example, imagine if we can open our APIs to consumer service. They can say, I actually like Bob Dylan. And then they use that search. Then they can find places where Bob Dylan is being played. And that puts a very interesting, relevant context to a bar or a restaurant or hotel. So there's this whole world discovery dimension of music that we're adding, connecting music to the physical context of places. And then yeah. that can go both ways. So either finding music or finding a new experience or actually finding that place through a music interconnectivity. So, and then back to the sales data that we're running and the right music, the right place, driving sales. So I have enough intellectual work to make me happy in 10 years, I think. You're right. The data from, from your platform could be used in so many ways to help businesses to give a better customer experience and hence drive more revenues for them. And as you said, also help artists to be discovered in in an entirely different way. Okay, so we have come to the end of the podcast. I always ask my guests a few quick questions on book recommendations, so books that you've enjoyed reading or that have made an impact on you that you'd like to share with the audience. If I could be a bit unconventional on this one, I would actually recommend reading the Goldman Sachs team's analysis of the music streaming market that they release every quarter. They have a very interesting angle to audio and music. They saw it so early, audio that now Daniel at Spotify is talking about the whole time. It's not a music platform, it's an audio platform. And and Horowitz also saw it very early when they started talking about the audio revolution. And look at it from that perspective, because it's mind-boggling. Like, you have AirPods in your ear the whole time, right? You have your ears ready to take impressions, but your eyes are consumed already because you're doing something with them. But all of the hours that your ears are active, either in the headphones or outside the headphones, and how that market becomes something completely different than we thought about before. The book has not been written yet. But it's somewhere in between the lines of how Goldman Sachs is kind of analyzing the, the audio market. Imagine how many people are listening to something right now. Yeah. And they're passively listening on their way to work or at the gym. And they're there and you can reach them. Right? True. And, and that's just this amazing new interface that no one's thought about before. Yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Thank you so much, Ola, for joining me in this conversation on Monday morning. I really enjoyed hearing about Soundtrack Your Brand and look forward to following your journey. Thank you so much for having me and have a great week.